And a great pleasure to be here. Uh, so many people, I'm really surprised. This in between time, this sag after Christmas, and then the gearing up again for, um, for the new year. This place opened up at the new year last year. Um, some of you were here. It was a, a very wonderful evening. And look what's happened in the meantime. It's a wonderful, wonderful garden that's growing here. And I feel very, very uh, honored to be uh, a small part of it. I haven't done the children part until today. Um, and there's a whole room full of uh, kids in the net, over there, which of course you know. Uh, <laughs> we did a lot of singing and a lot of hopping and a lot of marching and then a little bit of talk. It was very refreshing. It's the only way, of course. Um, often when we start to practice, it's from a sort of state of desperation sometimes, or at least a, a, a deep need. And it feels so personal that uh, we don't think about what it means in the larger picture. But eventually we have to begin to see that if it stops with us, it's totally pointless. It's really not about us in that sense, in the largest sense. It includes all next generations. Who knows how many next generations? As we are included in all the past generations who brought us to this point, we certainly didn't get here all by ourselves. We're just a little tiny, thin layer of an enormous effort that has been coming from the very misty, distant past. We forget that, of course, and it's wonderful to stop and remember it and to begin to open up and include the next generation so the whole thing doesn't come to a grinding halt with us. That would be a terrible shame. They gave me a subject for the um, children's talk. Uh, I'm very bad about assignments. I get very grumpy about it, (laughs) resistant, and think, oh, I can't talk about generosity. I don't know anything about generosity. Um, So I've been thinking about generosity a lot, (laughs) and I thought I would talk about it here, too. Uh, It's a wonderful subject. It's the first paramita. It's the, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> There's no, no fear that I will go over, though. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> I see. Thank you. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> it's the first paramita of the six paramitas, maybe some of you know. Uh, Generosity is the very first one. They're bodhisattva practices, the practices of of, uh, compassion, 
Shantideva says the only real practice of Buddhism is the practice of compassion. Um, How to open up to the world, how to feel with the world. Usually we protect ourselves too much um, and become uh, behind a barrier, such a barrier that we can't begin to uh, understand ourselves or the world because we're shut in. It becomes a very narrow life. And so much of, of our practice is about opening up. And this first paramita, generosity or giving, dana, dana, that's where we get donation, isn't it? It's in our language still. Very important. It's about trust, basically. It's about trusting the world to receive us and about trusting ourselves to receive the world. And this practice of meditation is a wonderful exercise in generosity. It's an enormous gift that we give to ourselves to do this practice. And sometimes we fight against it. Uh, Some of us, I know, uh, myself included, I don't have the time to do this. There are all these other things to do. Often the most uh, nourishing things for us are the things that get at the bottom of our list. And meditation is one of them. It's an enormous gift that we give to ourselves. And as a result a gift to everything else in our world. Our world changes. It makes a great shift when we're in a life of meditation. A life of meditation meaning being able to sit regularly and to carry that sitting into our everyday life. With the barriers down. I read recently that uh, somebody's definition of Buddhism is Buddhism is a practice of loss. I think that's absolutely right on. Sometimes I say it's it's one come down after another. When we sit, we uh, divest ourselves. It's a kind of continual divestment. When we sit briefly, the way we do this on on Sunday morning, it's it's a very momentary and and, um, simple divestment. Our our minds get more simple as we sit. Um, All the things that um, persuade us to be agitated and um, involved become much more simple as we sit because what we have is what we have right here and right now, wherever the here and now is. 
even in the midst of a tremendous um, drama somewhere. The actual actuality of any drama is just one's own present breath and presence in the space that we're occupying. It's the air we breathe and the ground under our feet and the beating of our hearts. It's the being in the moment that everybody talks to. That's a tremendous divestment, isn't it? Of all the other concerns that are all whirling around us and all the, all the rushes from A to B and B to C that we do before we actually do it. It's such a funny life. So much of our life is done before we've done it. We're rehearsing it or we're regretting it. It happens, we have to do it over and over and over again. Um, so that much of our life is filled up with all this, all this extraneous stuff. Living in a dream, we say. We're living in this illusion of vast and exciting um, and desperate situations. Actually, it's just this. And the ones who survive holocausts and um, typhoons and um, terrible, dreadful, horrible things often are the ones who can maintain a steady beating heart in the presence of whatever. To be able to meet and be with doesn't mean we survive in the in the physical sense maybe but we survive as integrated beings the integratedness that we already are always and that we lose so quickly so this generosity to ourselves is all about being able to relinquish sometimes what feels very precious to us in order to open up those gates um, and to find the treasure within. Dogen Zenji calls it a great treasure that will open of itself when we sit. And in our daily life, generosity is so um, important as a bodhisattva practice. How to be with um, so-called others. So-called because uh, we all belong to each other. We're all of a piece with each other. Uh, In this incredibly interesting situation where we all look really different and have different pasts and futures and intentions, and yet somehow um, we're all of the same family, truly of the same family. Uh, Sometimes it sounds like a kind of romantic thing, but it's not. It's actually uh, 
our DNA and the DNA of a flea are almost the same. And our DNA is the same um, as human beings. Uh, It all comes down to the same thing, which isn't a thing at all, of course. It's much too big for that. And so how we live with each other is what I think we keep struggling so mightily to learn how to do and to be. It's so difficult for us. I think because we're so young, we haven't been on this earth for nearly as long as the dinosaurs ever were. So we haven't learned very well how to, how to do this thing. But we're trying. And life keeps teaching us, and we teach each other, sometimes in a kind of fierce way, But gratitude as a part of generosity is a big part of our practice and how to experience gratitude for even the hardest teachings is another part of of generosity and a very important part. Sometimes it's hard to feel thankful for harsh words that come to us. And it doesn't mean that we need to lie down and let Let's let the world stomp on us, but to learn from it, to stand up in integrity and learn from it and be grateful for the teaching. That's important. And to be proactive in it. When we're young, sometimes it's hard to know what to do. There's a a very sweet story of Katagiri Roshi. Uh, He used to tell about when he was just learning how to um, live with his grumpy old master. His father sent him when he was, I think, 14 years old to live in this cold temple in Japan where there was just one Zen master and nobody else. Um, So his father was being generous by offering his son, but the son didn't have any choice in it. And he thought he was going to learn, but what he learned was how to scrub the floor and how to make the meals and how to keep hot tea going for the master and uh, work in the garden and all the things that it took to work, to keep the temple, the little little chilly temple going. And one of his jobs was to um, make a hot bath for his master every night. And in Japan, as as you probably know, um, I was going to say in the old days, but actually when I was there not very long ago, they're still doing it at Rinso Inn, where you make a big fire um, with lots of wood and get it going, and it heats up uh, the the water heater that um, puts hot water in the in the tub, or sometimes the the fire is right under the tub and it actually heats it right on the spot. So it's it's a, a big job to do. And then um, the old master comes in and and gets in the tub and or no he gets he you, in Japan you wash first and he. Um, would always tell Katagiri Roshi to wash his back for him. 
it's wonderful in a Japanese bath. You wash each other's baths, backs, and um, it's a kind of, of cozy thing to do with your friends. You can do it in, in Japantown at the uh, kabuki baths. It's lovely. So he, every night, would have to scrub the master's back. And he was very intimidated. He was a very big master, and it was a very big back, and he was a very grumpy guy. So poor Katagiri was very shaky, and he would always do the back like this. And then he would you know, try to take every, make sure he was happy so he didn't get grumpy with him. And little by little, he felt funny about it. And finally, one day, he just picked up the cloth and started rubbing the back without being asked. And he realized how he had resisted doing that. And not only out of fear, but out of a lack of generosity in a way. That withholding. And what a difference it made in his mind and his heart when he suddenly picked up that rag and began to do it. All on his own, without being asked. Very big moment. There's so much to learn in this life. Infinite, actually. I used to think when I got old that I'd come to the end of it and it would be boring, but (laughs) it's not true. (laughs) It gets more and more interesting. More and more amazing. Kodo Sawaki Roshi um, was one of my teacher's teachers in Japan. He was called Homeless Kodo. He said homeless like a stray dog. He, um, he didn't have his own temple, and he kind of just went around and met with people. And he said some very surprising things, um, wonderfully surprising things, one of which was that... Um, Now I've forgotten it. <laughs> what did Kodo Sawaki say? Um, well, I have to come back to that because I. Oh, I know. Um, that nothing matters. Nothing matters. It's a kind of trick in a way. It's like saying form is emptiness and emptiness is form. That nothing and matter um, go together. And so what he was saying is we don't need to worry so much. He said he himself didn't know from day to day when he w- what he was going to eat or where he was going to sleep, but he always had something to eat and he always had some place to sleep. Um, it's a kind of shocking thing to think about. Uh, but it's true. I, I know for the 12 years that I was at Jikoji, we never knew from day to day how we would, how things would work, whether it would it would survive. And always, when we got to the very edge, when it looked like we weren't going to make it, something would happen, and it would all clear up, and we would go on. 
And I always felt that as long as we, our, our intention was clear and we were being honest with ourselves, that it would always be that way. I, I think that's what Koto Sawaki meant. I started the talk with the children by saying that um, uh, the things that we need, we already have. And that we d- don't realize it and we take it for granted. The first thing we need, maybe, I don't know whether it's first or third, but the fir- one of the things we really need is air. And it's so invisible and so present that we totally take it for granted. Completely. Without it, we die. We're out of here. And it's an amazing, amazing thing for us because even if we don't decide we don't want to breathe anymore, we don't want any more air, and we stop breathing, we turn blue and keel over and start to breathe all by ourselves, all on our own. So actually the breath is a very, very um, astonishing and important aspect of understanding ourself, the interface of ourself with the world, how that works, what it is. And light, this little light that we were singing about so enthusiastically, um, wonderful light. Without it, it's all dark. And water, it's all the things that we talk about needing to take care of. The earth, the most precious things, the things that we do need and that we take so for granted. So precious. say being born as a human being is the most um, it's the only way to to transform I'm not sure that's true but that's the the Buddhist legend is that the only uh, way to transcend they say the the wheel uh, that keeps us hooked is is as a human being and that it's so rare to be born as a human being. I think the more we know about the rest of life, the more um, it becomes a kind of question about that. Maybe snails and cats um, and whales have some part of it too. So how to live a life of generosity. It's a wonderful subject for right now. And the big push of Christmas to the to the, the strange kind of raw new beginning that the new year always is with our aspirations and our uh, facing the reality of how things really are. Especially now when everything feels so precarious. Um, 
in a way, it's a very grateful thing to have a precarious time because that's really the way it is always. We just notice it when things get crunchy. And it's our opportunity, our opportunity to, to meet with as much clarity and as much kindness as we can generate, as much generosity as we can find in ourselves. Yamada Roshi, a wonderful contemporary teacher, um, said he wished that his life could be like a great tree under which people could find uh, shade and rest. It's not a very large ambition, is it? But a very kind one. It's one we could all accomplish. Are there any questions? Comments? I love the story about the uh, backwashing um, in reference to my children and how I've you know, been trying to get them to participate in taking care of the house. Mm. and seeing the house as their home. And we've done chores, and we've done lists, and we've done all the different things. But the one time that I walked around the corner and the kitchen had been clean, and the floor had been swept, and he's 10, and he even washed the baseboard. And I just cried <laughs> because I didn't have to ask him. And mm. it was it was that kind of thing. He he said he saw the kitchen needed cleaning and he went in and cleaned the kitchen. And I will never forget that. Yeah. Of course he forgets now. <laughs> <laughs> it was marvelous. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. That's wonderful. Yeah, it happens. It's what we pray for our children, that breakthrough. Yeah, waking up. Yeah. Did everybody hear? Works with abused children 
And it's very hard to keep an open heart in the face of so much suffering. Of course, of course. And anybody who does that kind of work needs to take exceedingly, exquisitely good care of himself. It's the only way. And to carve out big enough pieces of time with enough nourishment for yourself that you can go back and have something to give. Otherwise, you just run out. But what a generous thing that is to do. That is a very, very hard thing to do. There's a Zen master up in Oregon. Do you know Jan Bays, Cho Zen Bays? She's worked with abused children for years and is a Zen master at the same time. I don't know how she does it, but um, I know that's what she does too, that she makes sure that she has lots of time to practice especially, um, but also to have things that are entirely different to, to do and to be um, encouraged by. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. But you know that. Yeah. Do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> it's very consuming. I know. Work. I know. Um, I walk around with stories sometimes. Yeah. Well, it helps to have people to share it with, too. Um, I know therapists have therapists and ministers have have brothers that they meet with and, and teachers do, too. You know, I meet with, with a, several groups of teachers and, and it helps tremendously just to be able to talk about our own concerns and feel like, I'm not out there all by myself. Um, and certainly that, sh- that would help too. Huh. There's so much need out there. No matter how much I choose to be generous in my life, I always come up feeling ungenerous. That's a very good point. I think about that a lot. I think about what it's like, uh, what it would be like to live in a village where life is so limited that the needs are obvious. And uh, if you read English novels about the last two or three hundred years, then there's always, um, you know, the other side of the tracks or the the poor people out in the farm and then the nice people who go out and help them. And it's all pretty simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. But our life, we are inundated with the suffering of every corner of the world so that we can't even begin to make a dent in it. And it can be extremely depressing if we think of it in that way, if we get caught by, by the stories. But the truth is, again, it's, it's the breath we're breathing and the heart we're beating and the place that we are that requires us. And it doesn't mean that we can't go off to Florida and build houses for Habitat for Humanity if we're moved to do that. 
but it, it's important not to be let our minds get caught by by too much information and just choose and choose one thing and do it really really well even though there's no glory in it maybe even nobody knows about it i always think that's the the most real generosity is to do do things that um will never be noticed you know so it's not about one's glory and aggrandizement at all it's just about taking care of something like picking up a, a gum wrapper on the on the ground or something doesn't mean anything but it takes care of things at the same time but i know what you mean it's 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 bewildering sometimes and when you read about you know the heartrending stories that uh, some child is starving in africa you just want to jump on the next plane and go and take care of it but it's it's our generous parental heart i think we all have the heart of a mother and a father that's always reaching out and then we have to tame it and find the place to put it where it does the most good Yeah. For me, the key to sustaining uh, my ability to provide service for for years uh, has been to be realistic, which means humble, about how much I can do and not overestimate what what I can provide. So in line with what you were saying to him earlier about carving out time for self-care, that's an absolute necessity, and it applies to what you said too. That if I overestimate how much I can give, then I just burn out. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, we we try so hard. Once you get, and it becomes a kind of obsession in a way. And, and that obsession in itself is self-serving. So it, you're right. It's a kind of humble, humbleness that's required in order to to just do what we need to do. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? Well, maybe that's enough. Do we do announcements now or um oh we did that already. Oh, so we do the potluck now with the children. Cool. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs>